Okay, we should probably get going. Um, on behalf of the Centre for Macroeconomics, I'd like to welcome you uh, this evening to this public lecture. It's the third in a series of four that the Centre for Macroeconomics uh, are providing. Um, I should introduce myself. My name is Stephen Millard. I'm a senior economist at the Bank of England, a visiting professor at the Durham University Business School, and most importantly for tonight, uh, a member of the Centre for Macroeconomics. Okay, what's going to happen is we're going to have a talk. It's going to last roughly 30 to 45 minutes, after which there'll be opportunity for questions. We'll probably wrap up sometime around about half past seven, quarter to eight, something like that. Uh, okay, what else? Um, so, these events are recorded. Now, we're hoping that there will be a podcast of the event made available online. Um, touch wood, we've, you're never quite sure about these technical things. Um, I'd like to ask to make a couple of announcements ahead of time, though. I'd like, first, if uh, you could all make sure that your phones, mobile phones, are on silent. We don't want any mobile phones going off during the talk. Um, you should feel free to tweet during the event. The hashtag is up there. It's hash LSE macro. Um, Okay. As I said, so this is part of the Centre for Macroeconomics public lecture series. Uh, tonight's speaker is uh, Walter Den Hahn. He's a professor here at the LSE and co-director of the Centre for Macroeconomics. And he's going to tell us all about whether everything you hear about macroeconomics, is it true? Thank Thanks. you. Okay, thank you for coming. So why uh, would I like to give this uh, lecture? Um, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. So Roman asked me uh, during lunch, how long did you uh, spend preparing this lecture? And I said, years. Um, so maybe I should have done it earlier. So I actually, I really do think that macroeconomics has some uh, severe problems. And I think it would be good if, uh, if it is criticized. The problem, though, is that the criticism that you, know, you hear in the press and uh, you know, if you have a beer at a pub, you know, to me, is, you know, reveals an utter lack of knowledge of what we actually do. And I think that's really bad because you know, my colleagues, they look at that criticism and they say, that doesn't apply to me. I mean, these guys have no idea what we're doing. And then they put that criticism aside. Even though I do think that you know, the crisis has taught us that we should do some soul-searching and ask ourselves uh, whether we cannot do a better job. Um, and to be honest, I sort of expected after the crisis to see more changes in so, you know, how we teach macroeconomics and the type of research we do. Um, and so the plan of this lecture is I'm going to talk about all the criticism that I've you know heard over the years, and uh, I'm going to argue is that most of these criticisms are either exaggerations or not quite true, and then I'm going to talk about what I think you know, is really the problem with how we do macroeconomics uh, these days, and then a very short part, I'm going to talk about you know, suggestions on how to improve. I mean, that clearly is going to be the, the toughest part to figure out. 
Okay, so this is sort of my background. That's a, a brook trout. That's a freshwater fish. So, <laughs> in macroeconomics, there is this distinction. I mean, the, the insiders already get the joke, but... So, in macroeconomics, there's this distinction between the freshwater macroeconomists, and then they refer to you know, schools in the U.S. which are inland. So, there's Carnegie Mellon, University of Rochester, University of Minnesota, and Chicago. And so, I got my PhD at, uh, the, you know, the University of... Uh, sorry, Carnegie Mellon University. And I was the birthplace of rational expectations and you know, DSDE models, what we're going to talk about a lot, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. So that's where, you know, Lucas was when he did his work, and Finn Kitland, and, um, you know, Prescott, and then, you know, the econometricians, you know, Hansen and Singleton. But even Herb Simon, right, the Nobel Prize winner, who did do behavioral economics, he was there, uh, although in a different department. So we had the freshwater economist, sort of started DSDE and then the saltwater economists were you know, Princeton and Yale and Columbia. Okay, so we're going to talk about DSDE models and I want to talk a little bit about what that means. So D stands for dynamic. I mean, that cannot be very controversial. I mean, almost any interesting economic problem right, has a dynamic aspect. Right, so you guys coming here you know, has a dynamic aspect. Is that... There is an investment. You've got to listen to me for an hour, which could be very costly and you know, boring and problematic. But you're going to get all this wisdom, and you know, it's going to increase your human capital. And so you know, when you get out of here, you know, you've gained something. But you know, you're, you're trading off, you know, wasting one evening, not going to the pub. You know, no drinks allowed inside. But then you, know, you gain something for the future. So that's not very problematic. Stochastic, well, the world's not deterministic, so that's not problematic either. A general equilibrium actually doesn't mean what you think it means. It definitely doesn't mean that it always is the case that demand is equal to supply. We've given that up a long time ago. Right? So one of the big paradigms in DSDE models, new Keynesian models, goods markets don't clear. Labor market matching models, you also don't have so that demand is equal to supply. So general equilibrium really means is that there's going to be feedback effects you know, at the macro level. Um, and it definitely doesn't mean, which still some people think, that general equilibrium means you know, things are flat, things don't move. I'm going to give some examples that general equilibrium could very well mean that things fluctuate a lot. But again, is that people who don't speak our language, they, they see the word equilibrium and they think st you know, stability. Okay, so we've got to define... DSDE a little bit. And there's the narrow interpretation. And so that's sort of the prototype real business cycle model or the prototype new Keynesian model without any bells or whistles. Right? So some of my colleagues, when you know, they hear the criticism about DSDE, they say, well, you know, this, those are those models you know, without frictions and anything interesting. So it doesn't apply to me. I don't want to do that this evening. I really want to take you know, a very broad uh, interpretation and so it's going to be modern macro models, but I am going to keep rational expectations and optimizing agents. <clears throat> now, there are some uh, academics, like, for example, my advisor, Albert Marcet. He puts learning in those models. 
And you can put bounded rationality or you know, rules of thumb consumers. And those models are not always that different from DSG models. But you know, for this evening's talk, I'm going to stick to models where agents have rational expectations and agents optimize. Okay. Oops. Okay, so I want to explain a little bit you know, why DSDE models became popular, because actually it was a big fight you know, within the profession. And you know, the DSDEs have really taken over, but it took a while. So in the 70s, there was another big crisis, and it was the oil crisis. And that led to high unemployment and high inflation rates. And it was especially bad for Europe, because after the 70s, in the US, the unemployment rate went back to lower levels before. But that didn't happen in Europe. Right? Unemployment rates really stayed high. And so, just like now, you have a big crisis, and then people start blaming macroeconomists. And so, I mean, that's sort of you know, the time I got interested in economics. And then I was an undergraduate in, uh, in Rotterdam. And then I had to figure out where I was going to do my PhD. <coughs> and I wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon. I mean, that was, you know, the place to be in those days. That's where they were doing this new thing. And at that point, it was risky. I mean, I didn't know that was going to take over the whole profession, or almost the whole profession. Um, okay, so why in those days did they criticize you know, the popular models of those days, those large, old-fashioned Keynesian models of the 60s and 70s? So those models... A big part of those models were empirical relationships. So they estimated, for example, the relationship between consumption and gross domestic output, or the relationship between import prices and the exchange rate. So they put those estimated relationships into a model. The problem is those relationships turn out to be not constant through time. And they were especially not constant if the government changes policy. Right? If the government has a different type of monetary policy, the different types of tax policy, those relationships were not constant. <clears throat> the other problem of those models were that agents were backward-looking. And the problem with that is, is that those models were very bad in predicting how the economy would respond to policy changes. Right? So, for example, suppose the government is going to raise taxes because they want to finance the, you know, the budget deficit. What happened in those models... Right? If you sort of try to simulate what was the effect of this increase in taxes, you know, profits would go down. And if profits go down, then people's expectations would be affected because they had like adaptive expectations. And adaptive expectations means that how you form expectations depends a lot on what happened now and what happened in the past. So these models were very slow right, in letting people's expectations adjust to these kind of policy changes. Even though Right? In newspapers and in television programs, everybody's talking about you know, these changes in, say, the tax rate or monetary policy. So there was this desire to have some kind of forward-looking. Right? The agents think, they try to think through, if there's a change in policy, what it's going to mean for, say, their profits or their income. <clears throat> okay, the other problem was, you know, these, these models were humongous. And actually, I, I was still you know, probably one of the last students that sort of worked with these models. They were incredibly difficult to understand. <clears throat> and then there were you know, problems in terms of you know, matching the long-term trends, like the, the Kelder growth fact, like that capital output ratio is constant. Um, <clears throat> okay, so then 
then we started these DSTE models. And so <coughs> the way we dealt with them, they were a lot smaller. Even today, the biggest DSTE models are still a lot smaller than those really big, large Keynesian models that we used to have and actually still have in some policy institutions. <coughs> By being smaller, it's much you know, better to understand what the model as a whole is doing. I'm going to come back to that issue a couple of times during the talk. Okay, so they put rational expectations in these models. Not because they really believed that agents were that damn smart, that they really could understand you know, the whole structure of the model and that all expectations were consistent with you know, what the model predicted, which is you know, the key feature of rational expectations. They just wanted to have a way to have agents be forward-looking. Okay. And the other thing is, is that, remember that I said is that these old models, they had these empirical relationships right, between key variables, but they didn't turn out to be not constant through time. So the hope was, is that you, know, you want to get down sort of to the level where you know, decisions are being made. And if you understand how decisions are being made, then you can look at things like you know, text changes and how agents respond to that. So the idea was, you, know, you, you specify preferences, you specify technology, you specify the macro, uh, the market environment, and then you try to understand how agents respond to changes in things like tax rates. Now, it's very ambitious, right? and to keep it tractable, you have to make some choices. Right? So the choices that were made is that agents have rational expectations, and they're actually smart in, in terms of being able to compare right, all the costs and the benefits of decisions. <coughs> Okay, and then we were quite careful in picking you know, the type of preferences and technology that were consistent with those long-run facts. Okay, we're going to get uh, closer to the criticisms. <clears throat> so you, you often hear is that you know, modern macro is like way too mathematical. Uh, it's definitely a lot of math in what we do. Uh, and so this is from an article by Krugman. So he has the term Panglossian economist. It says if you know, we think that the existing world is really the best possible world. Okay, so last Monday... Oops. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so last Monday I was at a panel discussion here at uh, LSE about um, you know, whether economics should change after the crash. And then... One of the, uh, the panel members says that, you know, economists, they use all this math because they want to be like physicists. I mean, so maybe I should go to a psychologist and sort of check whether that's really true. But um, the thing is that <clears throat> economics has, and macroeconomics in particular, has become more mathematical when we started with these DSDE models. But, I mean, maybe the guy's right. Maybe I am really envious of uh, physicists. But we actually thought, I mean, there's good reasons why we want to make things more mathematical. It's, you know, the type of problems that we wanted to address, you know, they really required a different set of tools. Now, this whole list was sort of, you know, to, meant to impress you a little bit. But let me talk about, you know, a, a couple of them. So... In these new models where agents were forward-looking, the behavior today in the current period, right, the consumption decisions, investment decisions, they depend also on the behavior in the future. 
and not only on what's actually going to happen, but also on what could happen. And that gives you a much tougher mathematical problem, where you're not just working in sort of you know, simple Euclidean space, where you can sort of you know, draw a time path of what's going to happen, but you really have to solve right, in a much more complex space, you know, where the solution is behavior, and you have to be able to you know, specify the behavior for all possible outcomes. The other thing, other pos uh, examples of you know, why life just became more difficult from a tool's point of view is we wanted to do things like interaction between the private sector and the government. Right? So if the government tries to think about what's optimal policy, then the government takes into account, of course, the behavior of the private sector. But the private sector is not completely stupid. They take into account what the government is doing. And they adjust their behavior like that. So again, you get this interaction. And you're just going to need math tools to do that. Okay, so let me give one more example. The signal extraction problems. Right? Remember, the S that stands for stochastics. <clears throat> so you get shocks. But you don't always know what's behind that shock. Is it a short-term shock? Is it a long-term shock? How do you figure that out? So this is like a signal extraction problem. And so then you want to use something like the Kelman filter. And I think for all these you know, things that we've worked on, I think you can say is, is that you, know, you are going to need more math. And I don't think it's you know, because we were envious of physicists is that the things we wanted just really required more math. Okay, so now we're going to get to the criticisms. <clears throat> so the punchline is, in these last 30 years, they've been working on DSTE models. We, we really have done a lot more than just a prototype, simple, real business cycle models that we teach first-year MSc students and uh, PhD students, and a lot more than just a prototype New Keynesian model. <clears throat> and the other thing, and I'm going to get back to that a couple times, is that you shouldn't think that there is this one macroeconomic model for the world or for a country. If you have different types of questions, you're going to need a different type of model. Okay, so what are they saying about us? So after years, I finally get my chance to respond. <clears throat> okay, right, and, and this is not you know, just only at pubs. It's like, you know, respect to journalists and, you know, newspapers like the Financial Times. And, you know, at the end of last year, The Guardian had a whole series on how bad macroeconomics is. Okay, so the big criticism is that we work with you know, the representative agents. We don't look at you know, cross-sectional differences, inequality. So I suggest that you just type these words in italics on Scholar Google, and then you'll see is that you know, lots of articles. <clears throat> so last year, the ESSC had organized this meeting at Oxford, where you get like, different you know, representatives of different approaches, you know, talk about what they had in common or, and not. <clears throat> And then I was the representative you know, for the DSDE models. <clears throat> and so there was this agent-based guy, and he says, I told my students I was going to go to this meeting, and I was going to talk to people who think that you can model the economy with a representative agent. And I was just so pissed, because if you go to my website, I mean, I've been working on heterogeneous agents for the last 20 years. I mean, when I was a student, we already started, you know, in a very simple way, putting in heterogeneous agents. We even have a big fight about, you know, what's the best algorithm to solve models with heterogeneous agents. And all that is sort of ignored. 
Um, and I don't quite, I mean, it really is too bad, is that there isn't better knowledge about you know, all the work that we do. And it's not just me, right? If you try those things on Google Scholar, you really see there's lots of people working with heterogeneous agents. Now, that doesn't mean they're very good models. And in fact, they're quite bad. And in particular, is that if you discipline yourself and choose you know, reasonable parameters, right, the predictions of these models are really not that good. I mean, they're much better than these representative agent models in lots of respects, but they're still not very good. Right? In particular, if we can get the wealth distribution right, we can get the income distribution right, even though we need some tricks, but getting the joint distribution right is very difficult. So there's lots to criticize, but you know, criticize the best of what we have to offer, not the, you know, the prototypes. Okay, another thing, and this is a quote from Krugman, you know, not a stupid guy, I mean, I think he won some prizes. Uh, so this is a literal quote. So he says, the idea that recessions are bad things had been rejected by many freshwater economists. Well, I think there's some MSc students here. If you write that on your exam, I'm going to fail you. There is not a single freshwater economist who thinks that that's true. They may think that the government cannot do anything about it. They cannot improve the situation. But it's definitely not the case right, that a downturn is not a bad thing. Okay. Another one. These DE models, they have a unique solution. You always go to the same point. Right? After, there may be shocks to the system that get you, you know, out of that point where you started, but you always go back to the same situation. Again, it's not true. Even the simplest prototype model does not have unique solutions. And in particular, it does have what we call sunspots, or self-fulfilling beliefs. Right? It's just that things happen only because people think they're happy. Okay, so let me give an example of the, the last point, that after the shock, the economy can very well move to a, a completely different point. So this is from a paper uh, by myself. So on the x-axis, I have the current unemployment rate. And on the y-axis, I have next year's unemployment rate. So first look at the lower blue line. So that's sort of, you know, simple dynamics. So I guess if I move, I lose the microphone. Oops. That's the point. Okay, so if I'm at this part, I hope you guys can see that. So I'm below the 45 degree line. So that means if I'm here, then the next period, the unemployment rate will be lower because I'm below the 45 degree line. So I nicely converge towards that, you know, big dot. Similarly, if I below that, I move up towards it. So that's the kind of dynamics that people have in mind when they say, after a shock, the economy always goes back to that same point. But what I show in this, you know, this paper is that, so the idea about the lines are is that the equilibrium is only there when the line is solid. Right? So if it becomes dash, it doesn't exist anymore. So if you start at the lower dot and there's a small shock, you always go back to that same point. But if you have a bigger shock, if you move away further from that dot, it's actually possible that you move to the upper branch 
And then you're going to converge towards that higher dot. So I use this, this model to explain why after the 70s, in the US, after all this turmoil about you know, high inflation and oil prices going up and high unemployment, in the US, the economy converts back towards this lower point. In Europe, however, they actually moved towards this higher unemployment point. And that was quite persistent. When the unemployment rate in countries like you know, France and Italy and the Netherlands is that unemployment went up and it stayed up. <clears throat> and then the point about the paper was is that that high unemployment equilibrium that doesn't exist in the US because unemployment benefits are lower. Anyway, so you see is that I'm not, not sure whether I did a great job explaining it. And maybe you, know, you thought you just didn't understand it. It's something that's good, because it you know, just points out is that the dynamics we can generate in these models really is not you know, that simple and always that trivial. <clears throat> OK, so now we, we get to the word finance. So we had a big financial crisis. And you know, macroeconomists are accused of not incorporating finance. And I, I'm more than willing to admit that we should have done more and probably could have done more. But again, is that there's lots of macroeconomic models where they do worry about finance. And there are lots of macroeconomic models where there are crashes. Now, the type of crashes that people focused on were like the sudden stop uh, crashes that we saw in Southeast Asia. Right? So you get lots of capital inflow, and then something bad happens, and then people you know, withdraw that capital, and then the economy tanks. <clears throat> so, there were, I mean, I'm going to talk quite a bit about finance later, but so definitely is that the idea is that we didn't have financial markets, or we didn't have financial markets with frictions. I mean, that's definitely true. Okay, so now, the other thing that's on the board is these three markets, or orthodoxy. So, we're accused by that a lot. And in particular, there's quite a few sorry, yeah, journalists who say that you know, macroeconomists are really to blame for the deregulation, which then caused the crisis. So people like me are really responsible for you know, what, ha what happened. Now, first of all, I think you know, policymakers don't listen to us very much. So I really don't think that you know, we have a lot of influence. I think policymakers wanted to deregulate, and it's true, they may have used you know, some of our theories as excuses. I mean, so, so give you an example. So Clinton actually built a quite a big surplus. And then Bush Jr. became president, and then he said, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a surplus. Let's just you know, lower taxes. And the argument was, you know, things are going well, there's no reason not to give the money back to the people. Okay, so I think he said that during his... Uh, you know, presidential campaign. And then the economy, you know, turned sour. And then he said, you know, I really think we should lower taxes because that will stimulate the economy. Right, so his policy recommendations stayed the same. And he just used different economic arguments. Okay, now I think it is true, though, is that academics, they work in favor of the government not inf interfering too much not regulating too much. It's not because they thought 
that you know, financial markets worked perfectly, that there were no frictions, there were no, you know, no problems in these markets. But there was this belief that you know, the government is going to make it worse. And I think part of the reason was what I just mentioned, is that in Europe, after the crisis in the 70s, the unemployment rate stayed so high for so long. And you shouldn't underestimate how bad that is, because it's not only that you know, at each point in time, there are lots of people unemployed, some people unemployed for a very long time. Right? So long-term unemployment went up, and it's just devastating. And we did think that a big reason for that, and that's sort of part of that you know, little model that I showed you, that that was due to interference in the labor market. Like things like labor protection, or you know, high unemployment benefits. And so I think there was sort of this, you know, this feeling is that, okay, markets are clearly not perfect, but it's not clear whether the government sort of, you know, can improve things. That may have been wrong, right? But it definitely is not the case, is that we really were these strong believers in the ideas is that, you know, the market is efficient. And I think I'm going to get to that right now. Okay. This is probably where there's the biggest misunderstanding. So, complete markets, there's a fancy term that basically means is that you can insure against everything, any sort of you know, uh, reasonable or unreasonable outcome. <clears throat> so, let's look at efficient markets. <clears throat> so, again, I have a quote from Krugman. So, he says, economists were seduced by the vision of a perfect, frictionless market system. Again, is that you, you know, just search on Google Scholar and you just see that it's not true. Okay, there's a couple issues which are related. So one is this idea about efficient markets, right? these perfect frictionless markets. The other point is, you know, there's, supposedly there are no bubbles in DSDE models, so asset prices are only driven by fundamentals. Again, try to write down rational bubbles on Google Scholar and you see that's not true. But so, okay, I want to explain this. <clears throat> there are two types of efficiencies. And I think they're always mixed up, even by people right, that should know better. So the first type of efficiency is Pareto efficiency. So Pareto efficiency means if a market is Pareto efficient, that means what the market does, right, the allocations, are sort of the best possible. There are no exchanges of allocations that can make right, the people who participate in the ex exchange better off. So that's really, you know, when you say frictionless, that, that's what you mean. But then there's also this thing, efficient market hypothesis. Now that has to do with stock prices and actually whether, you know, whether they are predictable. Now, a part of you know, stock prices is predictable, but that's a compensation for risk. Now, but these two notions of efficiency you know, are very different. And so I found this on a blog, and it's actually by two former LSE students. So I don't know who taught them, but... Um, so here you see the confusion. So they first say the three basic assumptions of the efficient market hypothesis are that markets allocate... Right, resources efficiently, without frictions, liberalized markets are the best possible. That's Pareto efficiency. But then they say, 
The efficient market hypothesis comes in a variety of flavors, the weaker version and then the stronger version. That's not Pareto efficiency. That's something completely different. That's the finance, right, efficient market hypothesis. That means is that you know, returns on financial assets are just not, just not uh, forecastable. Um, okay. I get went back. Okay, so efficient market hypothesis. So I think everybody in macro thinks that markets are not completely Pareto efficient, and probably lots of markets are far from Pareto efficient. The efficient market hypothesis is something completely different, and I think there's you know, much more evidence that the efficient market hypothesis works. It just means, it doesn't mean that you know, the stock price that you observe is always you know, the true value is really only determined by fundamentals. It doesn't mean that everybody in the market is rational. The efficient market hypothesis just means that even though there may be very stupid people, even though there may be all kinds of frictions, you cannot make any money out of it. And so I want to give a, a way, uh, yeah. So one of the best papers written in macro was actually not a DSD model. It was an agent-based model. And it's a paper by Brock and Holmes in the 97 Acrometrica. So what these guys did, they said, you have two types of agents. One is quite smart and knows the fundamental value. The other guy extrapolates. And then the fraction of types was endogenous. So if one type was making more profits, then more people would switch and become that type. If the extrapolators were making more money, then people would switch towards that type, and then that kind of forecasting became more important. Now what these guys showed, that in a model with almost no shocks, an almost completely deterministic model, you could get asset prices, which looks a lot like what you see in the real world, meaning basically unforecastable. I mean, except if you know the exact algorithm, right? But if, you, if I would have given you data from their model and I would have asked you, you know, go try to predict, it would have been impossible. So these two authors, they understood there was a big difference between Pareto efficiency. Their model clearly was not Pareto efficient. There was all kind of volatility not related to fundamentals. Nevertheless, their model did satisfy the efficient market hypothesis. And you know, if you, don't, if you think the efficient market hypothesis really isn't true, then I suspect that tomorrow you're going to go to the city and make lots of money because it means <clears throat> that's what the efficient market hypothesis means, that at least some, that, that you can systematically make money, not just you know, being lucky. Okay. Now, these are the only equations I think I'm going to write down. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, after all, is that... There's a lot more math in economics, so I've got to do a little bit of math. I'm going to give you an example. How you can get a bubble, even if you have rational expectations. It's not that long ago, I went to a, a panel discussion on the euro, on the problems in the euro, and then a full professor in economics, he said, 
If ages are rational, you can't have a bubble. I'm going to give you a very simple example to show that that's not true. Okay, take a risk-neutral investor. There's no change in the fundamentals at all. Right? So in a Pareto-efficient market, the stock price would be flat. Okay, but I'm going to specify that the excess return on equity, so the return on equity minus the risk-free rate, each period is governed by this law of motion. So with 1%, it's, oh, sorry, with probability 19 over 20, it's going to go up 1%, and with probability 1 over 20, it's going to go down with minus 19%. But remember, it's just noise. But the risk-neutral investor is perfectly happy to invest in that because expected excess return is zero. And so this is you know, the graph that you get out of that. For this graph, the efficient market hypothesis is true. This market is far from Pareto efficient. Right? So those are you know, two really different types of concepts. Okay, one more, last one. Uh, actually, again, I, I was at this uh, meeting of the OECD, and again, as, you know, the full professor, he said, yeah, yeah the, the, the reason politicians you know, believe in austerity is because in these prototype models, fiscal policy has no effect. Again, it's not true. Government expenditures has an effect in almost, actually in almost, almost all models that I know. It's true is that because of recurring equivalence, taxes may not have an effect. But if I teach recurring equivalence to my students, I show them is that if, even if you, you know, put in the slightest changes, it disappears. Okay. So why do they dislike us so much? Uh, to be honest, I really don't know. I mean, so now I'm the psychologist and sort of you know, asking why they're doing that. But I think the most important is what I have at the bottom. I mean, even for me, it's difficult to keep up you know, with the whole literature, what's out there. And so I think a lot of you know, commentators are just you know, really not aware of all the things you know, that we're doing. Okay, so this slide you already saw, but I just want to remind you. <clears throat> it's a nice, rich world out there. Okay, so now I've done the defensive part, and now I'm going to be uh, critical. So what do I think is wrong with macroeconomics? It's definitely true, there's one paradigm that's dominant, this DSDE model that's being trashed in the press. And I do think, actually, that there is too much math, even though I've given you lots of reasons why math is good. And what I think has happened is that we had very good reasons to start putting more math in the model. But then what happens is that people who like math, like myself, they say, hey, economics, that's a fun thing to do. And then you get people who like mathematics doing macroeconomics, and then it becomes more mathematical. And then we attract more people who do uh, economics with lots of math. See, the funny thing about academics, it's a self-regulatory profession. Even though, you know, when we talk about other professions, we say that's a bad thing. But, you know, so I'm a co-director of the Center for Macroeconomics. We got a big grant from the ESSC. Most people who evaluated our grant proposal were academics. 
If you're up for tenure, it's other academics that evaluate you. And so I do think is that, although there's lots of you know, good reasons to put in math, is that I, th I think uh, we may have overshot a little bit. Okay, so often you know, we get accused of not being open to alternative approaches. I mean, I think that's somewhat true. I think people are always you know, somewhat defensive of things which are new especially things that you know, are going to threaten your you know, human capital. If you put a lot of you know, effort into building up this human capital to be able to work with these mathematical models, you're not that happy if you know, the new guy says, no, 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 let's do it another way. What I also think is that these alternative approaches would get a lot more attention if they used the same language as the, you know, the dominant paradigm. You know, for example, things like efficient markets, and if they also understood better what the challenges are. And in particular, the challenges are not so much to generate a crash. Our models can do that too. Or to generate volatile asset prices. Or to have models that are better than these prototypes. The hard part is that if you discipline yourself by choosing parameters to then get you know, interesting action. There's a bunch of PhD students and they know the hardest part is not to have an idea. The hardest part is to have an idea that's actually going to be you know, quantitatively important if you discipline yourself in you know, choosing things like preferences and technology and market structure. Okay, other possible problem, problems. We didn't predict the crisis. I don't think that's so much a problem. <clears throat> it is true that we didn't understand the risks of the financial sector. It's definitely not true that we thought that you know, we were never going to get a crisis anymore, which sort of some people suggest that they quote Blanchard and Lucas. We were thinking of different crises. Right? The crisis we were thinking about was the baby boomer problem and global imbalances. And the funny thing is, now everybody in macro is thinking about financial crises and putting financial sectors in models. But the problems of the baby boomers, that hasn't been solved yet. So. Let me make a prediction. We're going to have another crisis in the next 10, 20 years. It's because of baby boomers, and it's because we didn't put life cycles in our models, because we were too busy trying to explain the last crisis. So it's videotaped, so maybe 10, 20 years from now, I'm going to be really famous, and <laughs> I, I, I predicted the next crisis. <clears throat> okay, I have to speed up a little bit, so let, let me just skip some, and let me just get to the important part. So. I do think uh, we may have overdone it a little bit on the math, but I think the worst thing that we've done is we don't have the balance right. These DE models, they have lots of useful insights, even though they are mathematical. But I think it is true is that we as a profession as a whole, we didn't spend enough time thinking about what happened in the past, right? other, other time periods and other countries. Our models are you know, usually very abstract, very simple, right? even though they deal with you know, difficult topics. But there's little detail on you know, institutions and politics and social norms. I have some friends who are civil servants. And so they talk to me about their interaction with academics. And they say, these academics, they just don't understand what's politically feasible. You guys like beautiful you know, suggestions, but it's just never going to work. And I think it's true is that, I mean, there is something called political economy, but I think we could do a lot more of that. And this is, I think, is the biggest problem. 
And there's just this, this big gap between what we do as academics and what policymakers you know, would like to get from us. And so, to sum that up, I think there's just too many people like me. <coughs> I mean, I really, I know it's scary, but, um, <laughs> but I really do think that this is the problem. I mean, I think the stuff that I'm doing is useful. But, I mean, I'm a consultant at the Bank of England. But you shouldn't think that, you know, Mark Carney drops by and says, you know, Wouter, I'm, I'm thinking about this funding for lending scheme. Can you help me a little bit filling in the numbers? I mean, I'm helping the researchers, you know, writing their papers or, you know, how to best, you know, develop an algorithm to solve their models. Uh, I, w I wouldn't have a clue to, you know, help Carney with those kind of questions. A couple of weeks ago, a journalist calls me. She says, you know, I saw you've been working on labor markets. Uh, I'm curious, you know, to, ha to have your, you know, whether you have any ideas about what's happening with employment in the construction sector. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, my model is about labor markets or, you know, about aggregates. I mean, they're interesting models, you know, interaction between precautionary savings and unemployment and whether that can, you know, make unemployment or, you know, recessions more persistent. But policymakers, I mean, they want to have specific answers. I mean, there's so many policy instruments, and we provide almost no guidance. I, I really think in that sense we have failed. Uh, and I actually, I suspect that you know, some of my colleagues are not that happy that I say this now. But, uh, so can it be fixed? So like I said, this is going to be embarrassingly short. So first of all, a couple words of caution. <clears throat> there will never, well, never, not, definitely not in our lifetime, and I suspect not in the f next 500 years, be like one framework that's going to be the right framework for all periods, all countries. Right? So this prototype new Keynesian model with a representative agent that's being trashed so much, I don't like that model. But it did a reasonable job you know, describing the economy during normal times. It was never meant to do more than that. Right? So Economists like Willem Buiter, they're really criticizing the new Keynesian model, that it didn't you know, warn about risk that was being built up. It was never meant to do that. To do that, you need other models. Okay, so what is the purpose of an economic model? What I think an economic model should do, it should, you know, it should structure your thinking a little bit. You're asking a question in a hypothetical economy. Now, of course... You've got to make the jump right, to the real world. You say, okay, so I'm learning stuff in this hypothetical economy. So what you want to do is you want to ask yourself, you know, these results that we get in these models, is that robust? <coughs> so you start changing the model a little bit. You have to ask yourself, okay, so these results that I get, does that really depend on rational expectations? Which I admit is a very strong assumption. And then at some point, you've got to make the, you know, the leap of faith. And you say, you know... I've seen all these results, and I'm really confident that that result is there, so I'm going to implement it in the real world. A model is not more than that. And if you're a different type of question, you're going to need a different type of model. Okay, two more slides. Correcting the balance. So like I said, I mean, I do abstract theoretical work, even though I do it on a computer with numerical algorithms, but I really do think... As a profession as a whole, we should do more applied. We should you know, worry more about politics. We should 
worry more about you know, really the components, you know, what builds up these aggregate variables. And in particular, you know, we should help policymakers more. And if this means less abstract theory, then so be it. The other thing is <clears throat> we should spend a lot more time on things like poverty and growth, long-term issues, maybe climate, health, and less on business cycles, even though most of my research is on business cycles too. So how to get there? I have just a few ideas. So PhD students are typically required to do this abstract, you know, mathy type of modeling. Maybe we should tell these guys that you know, they should do something descriptive. Go to a policy institution and do something that's not that mathematical. Just look at, you know, compare the current recession with you know, previous ones. <clears throat> so the other idea I have is that you know, publishing is incredibly important. So when I was young, there wasn't that emphasis on publications. And then what happened, there were these professors who were just doing nothing. Right? They were just you know, fishing and sitting at home, and you know, or, you know, they had a travel agency, and, uh, they did, or, or they're doing consulting, all kinds of things on the side. So then they said, well, you know, all these lazy professors, you know, we, we're going to have standards, so you've got to publish more. But so now basically all that counts is publications. So one idea I have is that maybe policymakers, you know, like the Bank of England, they can award medals. But then for concrete policy recommendations, and then institutions like you know, universities and the ESRC, they should give those kind of medals the same weight as you know, publications in, uh, in top journals. Maybe academics you know, should get academic leave to do policy work. Okay, so last slide. So this is from uh, the big man, John Maynard Keynes. So this is what he wrote after Alfred Marshall had died. So, the master economist must possess a rare combination of gifts. He must reach a high standard in several different directions and must combine talents not often found together. He must be mathematician, so historian, statesman, philosopher in some degree. He must understand symbols and speak in words. He must contemplate the particular in terms of the general and touch abstract and concrete in the same fl flight of thought. I wish I could write like that. I mean, just. He must study the present in the light of the past for the purposes of the future. I mean, isn't it beautiful? I mean, no part of man's nature or his institutions must lie entirely outside his regard. He must be purposeful and disinterested in a simultaneous mood, as aloof and incorruptible as an artist, yet sometimes as near the earth as a politician. That's it. Thank you, Vassal, for <clears throat> reminding us uh, just how difficult it is to be a great economist. Um, it's time for, we've got plenty of time for questions. Um, one or two ground rules, though. First, firstly, try and limit to one question at a time. Um, if you could, when uh, I, I ask you to ask your question, just give your name and uh, where you're from. Um, there are microphones, I think, going around, so try and wait for the microphone because this is recorded and that way uh, your question will come out on the recording. Uh, we're going to take a bunch of questions and then I'm going to ask Valter to respond and then we'll take a bunch more questions. So. 
Hi, uh, I'm Alex. I'm in the MSc Economics program with uh, Professor Denhan here. And um, my question is really about how we prepare the audience and you know, the general population for hearing about economics. And that really comes, you know, people are lucky if they've taken Econ 101 in undergrad. And if there's one thing I've learned from this master's, that everything I learned there is wrong. And how, so how do we reform that and get people to be receptive to what econ is now? Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. I'm Alex from Malaysia. Um, do you think macro models appeared inadequate because they do not take into enough account the irrationality of people? Front over, front left. Front left. Uh, do you think that uh, the things that you said about how we should get closer to policy, do you think everyone should do half and half or we should split the profession a little bit? Um, just, just for the record, sorry, I didn't catch your name. And... <laughs> I think they were all called Alex. Yes, I'm also Alex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question, probably an Alex. Okay, so, so how do we prepare the public? So, so like I said, I think, I mean, there really was a lot of you know, misinformation. And it's not just on criticizing you know, the state of macro. I think also when you talk about fiscal policy and austerity, you get a very biased view from the media. And I think there's at least two to blame. So one is, I think, is the media itself. I mean, I really suspect these guys, they like scandal, they like people being negative, and they don't care that much about the truth. Right? So if they call somebody like me, they're going to get an answer from, yeah, I'm not quite sure, you know, there's arguments in favor and arguments against. They don't want a person like that. But they also think is that we are to blame. I mean, lots of academics, they like me. Um, I mean, I don't like doing this kind of thing. I mean, I sort of get nervous about it, and you know, I don't know whether I'm at the right level. And I think a lot of academics are like that. So what happens is that you know, we read these things of our colleagues, and then we know that doesn't make sense, and then we don't speak up. Right, so a while ago, there was this scandal about you know, the Reinhard Rogoff things. These guys had made a mistake. And the thing was is that we knew is that that result had a big impact on policymakers, right? So the result was is that if your debt-to-GDP ratio gets above 90%, it's really bad for the economy. Now, we knew that was you know, bad academics, bad science, not because the error they made in the Excel, because they never dealt with the endogeneity problem, right? So what really causes what? But so even though we know that, is that most academics don't feel they want to speak up. Right? So, you know, be openly aggressive in the press. Now, there's some people who do, and those are the people you hear. And, yeah, so, I mean, like I said, is that I've been working up courage to at least get my thoughts together, you know, for, long, for a long time, and I, I probably should have done it earlier. Now, nobody is interested anymore in trashing macro, and now, finally, I speak out. <laughs> <laughs> so, I absolutely agree, is that our models are inadequate because people are not really rational. But 
every model you're going to write down is going to be wrong. And you've got, to be re- you've got to realize that, that every model is going to be misspecified. But so what you want to get out of a model is a lesson, a wisdom that you feel is so robust. Right? It's not going to depend that much right, on the particular assumptions you made. So the example I gave about the Brock Holmes paper, this agent-based model, I'm pretty sure every part in that model was wrong. I don't believe any investor behaves either like the you know, extrapolator or the fundamental list guys. The, the portfolio the problem I had was just you know, silly. I don't believe the switching rule. But I still believe the message, because I could just see is, is that if, you know, even if you would change things a bit, I mean, the message would be the same. And so I think that's just what you've got to do when you write on a model, is that you've got to sort of ask yourself, you know, is this the conclusions that I'm drawing, are they really robust? If they truly depend on people being fully irrational, then it's a bad model, or it's, you know, it's a bad use of the model. I have no idea. I mean, um, should we do 50-50 or, I mean, let me see what I can go back quickly. That's just bad. <laughs> and I think, I mean, this is not quite an exaggeration. You know, it's just, I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. But, so I think, I think anything would be an improvement. Um, okay, let's get rid of that slide. <laughs> okay, one there, one up top. My name is Sudhir Janaka, I'm an independent consultant who's worked in economics, in business and in consultancy. I feel that the economics profession has drifted a long way away from how economists who work in business or industry moves. So I was quite heartened by your conclusions towards the end. If you can move away from techniques, a model is a guide to understanding and not a crutch. And how can the models develop where you actually communicate, not just to the general public, but to economists who are not in the academic field? Hi, uh, Michael Hume from the LSE and Bank of England. Um, I was wondering if you could say something a bit about the, um, the length of the business cycle that we saw in the late 90s and 2000s. And if you wanted to be charitable, you could say it was a reasonably sized uh, duration cycle from the early 2000s to 2007. Uh, but you could also argue that it was part of a much longer cycle going back to the late 90s. So I was wondering whether you could say something about the ability of DSG models to sort of like explain the possibility of longer cycles. And in particular, the ability of, or, or the, ten, the strong tendency for the, for the models to converge on an equilibrium um, and whether we should think about different types of equilibrium, a dynamic equilibrium over a period of time and then some sort of long-term equilibrium that agents learn about uh, later or something like that. So I think there were a bunch of questions in that one. I hope you got them done. Are there, are there any women who'd like to ask a question? We've had plenty, plenty from men so far. There's one at the back there. Hi, yeah. Um, my name's Leah. I'm in the MSc in Economics and Philosophy. And uh, my question is, I, I found your suggestion interesting that economists should be involved more in policy because given sort of your talk, I thought... Um, the logical conclusion might be the opposite. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious because it seems like, 
I agree that you know you have these hypothetical economies that um, you're dealing with, and, and the mathematics applies in those situations, and you might get interesting, robust results from that. But I don't see how that necessarily that leap of faith um, that you're talking about to reality is maybe a good idea, especially considering that leaves out so many other things like morality or environmental issues or you know all these other issues that I think maybe policymakers are supposed to be putting together. Um, so my question is sort of what you think about that. I guess. Can you make the jump <coughs> from the hypothetical worlds to the real world? Maybe, maybe that's a, a few questions there for you to come back on. Um, so about uh, the drifting away from, you know, what people do in practice. I mean, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Um, and I think, I mean, this is sort of part of the purpose of the center is sort of, you know, to really increase you know, the, in, the interaction between what happens in the real world and, and academics and sort of, you know, outreach and, you know, understanding better what the needs are. And so, you know, a little bit related to your last question, uh, and I, I absolutely agree, is, is that I think policymakers shouldn't listen to my recommendations because, I mean, I didn't spend enough time thinking really about the institutions and, and you know, it's, it's a long time ago I just really looked at balance sheets and actual numbers, right, and how they change over time. But what I want to ask you is, is that if you don't want to use models, what are you going to use? You've got to you know, use something. See, the problem is, other than these models, there's very little. I mean, maybe there's some hunches, right? some intuition. But those things can be quite dangerous. So the nice thing about models is that you can sort of check whether your intuition, whether your hunches are right. That leap of faith, I agree, is, that's dangerous. But I mean, you have, exactly have to realize that it's dangerous. Right? So you have to understand sort of, you know, the shortcomings of your uh, models. But so a while ago, uh, there was this uh, panel in Essex, and it was about what uh, policymakers could expect from economists. And so David Miles was there. He's an external on the MPC of the Bank of England. And then so he said is that you know, the good thing about macro, you realize if you talk to somebody you know, who doesn't know any macro. And so even though we don't have that much to offer, we still have some things to offer. I mean, just imagine, right, is that the whole, you know, after Lehman Brothers, is that all these financial markets, you know, they froze up. Then what do you got to do? I think we were extremely lucky that we had Ben Bernanke. Because Ben Bernanke had actually worked on models with crashes, and he thought about frictions in financial markets. And this guy understood, he said, what you've got to do at a point like that is that you've got to go in full force right, to really pump enormous amount of liquidity in that market. And I'm pretty sure that you know, his own modeling background gave him that confidence to really understand that that was the right thing to do. But you're absolutely right, is that that shouldn't be the only thing. You should include other things. But I'm pretty sure is that without any guidance from economic modeling, it would be damn hard. But I think we can do a lot better to make that you know, jump a bit smaller. Um, and then, oh yeah, the hard question. <clears throat> so 
When we started these DSDE models, like, I mean, so I'm telling you guys, we really made lots of progress. But if you turn the clock back 30 years, is that we expected by now to have made a lot more progress. And in particular, what we thought was going to happen is that we're going to have models, one model in which you can think both about business cycles and about long-term growth and about cycles in between. We are not there yet. There is a growth literature that uses a particular type of model, and there is business cycles that uses a particular type of model. But these things are very likely to be related. And so, I have this graph at the end. So, this is UK GDP. And so, this graph sort of makes clear why growth is so important, and you know, business cycles is possibly less important. But so, the big question is now, we got this big downturn at the end. What's going to happen next? It can very well be is that you know, this thing that started as a business cycle turns out to lead to much lower growth for quite a long time period, just like we saw in Japan. And so we do have models about long-term growth. We do have models about business cycles. There's a little bit about stuff in between. But the big problem is they're all separate models, and they're probably connected. Okay, still time for some more. One there at the front, and then one along the side. Hi, I'm Jacob. I'm on the MSc Economics Program. Um, I was interested to see uh, that you brought up that economic history should be a uh, required part of macro training. Um, and I've been hearing that a lot lately, uh, th that macro needs reformed in that sense. What exactly do you think that looks like? Um, take, the, take the LSE, for example, where you have the two departments completely separate from one another. Do you think students should be required to take economic history courses, or do you think that economic history insights should be more inter in integrated into macro mod modules? This slide. My name is Angelica, I'm also from the MSc program. Just following up uh, Leah's and Jacob's questions uh, about, uh, do you think that economics should actually have a bit more interaction with other disciplines like sociology and psychology? Um, I don't even know if uh, central banks out there have also consultants in sociology and psychology, so perhaps that could also be one of the uh, suggestions for improvement or something. And then there was a question at the back. Um. Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm a PhD student here at LSE, one of uh, professors, uh, Professor Waters' students. I, 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 I certainly disagree what you said about the fact that there are many people like you. I mean, if there were more people like you, then we wouldn't probably have a problem, a problem in the first place, because I think you have nailed the problems of macroeconomics quite precisely. <laughs> now, Having said that, I would like to push you a bit more on this uniqueness of the paradigm that we have. So in particular, I think one of the reasons why we have this unique paradigm in macroeconomics is because you have this sort of circle between, I don't know if it's a vicious circle or a virtual circle, but you know, the measure of success that PhD students have is publishing in these top journals. Now, to publish in these top journals, you have to speak the same language that people who refer those journals have. So you become, in the sense, I mean, the fact that there is just a single paradigm is, the, is, is a consequence of the fact that you have to speak the same language to people that are, that are evaluating you. So I wonder if you have an idea about how to 
Do you think we have to break that circle in a way? And do you have an idea about how we can just break that up? So, so the question is, uh, given that you have to speak the same language to publish in the journals, and you have to publish in the journals to succeed, how can we break that? Um, and then also, should we, have, uh, should we hire psychologists at the Bank of England? I don't know the answer to that, so I'll uh, defer to you. <laughs> Let me start with the last question. I think you should. I mean, I think a big part of... You know, good economic policy is actually you know affecting people's you know minds and financial markets sort of moods. And I think the the new Italian prime minister seems to have understood that. I mean, I didn't see the video myself yet, but apparently he had this great PowerPoint presentation during his press conference, really trying to make make the Italians sort of you know positive and optimistic and. How to do that, you're not going to get from our models. But these things are clearly important. Right? And also the Eurozone problem is, is that these, what these policymakers are doing is a lot more than just you know, thinking about models. They really think about how the decisions affect you know, moods in markets. Uh, so that clearly is important. And then, actually, so th this Italian prime minister, he, uh, he did not only a spectacular show, he also was quite funny. So just like Steve, at some point he said, you know, the next question should be from a woman. And then a man with a beard raised his hand, and then he said, the lady with the beard. <laughs> and then the next person was also a man with a beard. He said, the other lady with the beard. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think is that, I mean, part of, you know, the benefit of having Mark Carney is, is that he just shows like he's this incredibly confident man. He's just going to... Yeah, the right person at the right place. Those things got to be important. I mean, just imagine me as the you know governor of the Bank of England, sort of you know usually even kind of grumpy, and, and you, you get that image, and you say you know you know let's let's sell the pound, let's just get get out of that country. Um, about history, is that um, I think we most economists they wouldn't be capable of integrating. You know, economic history in a you know, sensible way in, in our courses. I mean, we know a little bit. I mean, I've always been interested actually in history, not so much economic history, but um, so I think it would be a good idea is that if we would interact more, because I think the people in you know, the economic history department would do a better job than, uh, than, than we could. Breaking the cycle, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's even worse. You, know, you have like these little subgroups that you know, referee each other's papers. And uh, I mean, actually, in preparing this lecture, I thought about it quite hard. But so other than these, you know, these few suggestions that I have, um, breaking this sort of this, you know, this cycle of you know, having to publish, speaking the right language, I don't know. It's incredibly important. Um, I mean, even for the young guys over here, it's just that... Even if you have a brilliant idea, the problem in economics is that you always got to so, you know, be able to sell it. You got to do the PR right, the marketing. So I, I used to work at the uh, University of California in San Diego. And there was this uh, math professor, and he had proven some of these outstanding theorems. You know, Mr. X's theorem in the fourth dimension, something. I forgot what it was. This guy had just been promoted to you know, associate. 
Just because he had proven this one thing, they promoted him to full. And then we said, you know, if you do something just as spectacular in economics, then it takes 20 years before the profession realizes that, you know, that's what you've done. And so, how to sort of, I mean, that is part of, you know, of economics, is that it's, it, it takes time to convince people. And so some people are very good in that, and so, you know, doing the PR, and some people are not that good. And then it can take a long time before even, you know, good ideas are sort of, you know, being used by other people. Okay, any more questions? This one there. Hi, uh, my name's Tim. I graduated economics and uh, I now work in the financial sector um, here and in Geneva. Um, I was fascinated by the interaction between academics and policymakers uh, and your suggestion for providing more recognition and, and perhaps material awards for um, specific policy ideas is uh, really interesting. I think my question would be, do you think that a system of policy endorsement could really be independent? Um, and also, would those uh, policymakers be willing to align themselves with um, macroeconomic theories or, or at least academic theories at a level granular enough to be meaningful? Absolutely. Okay, oh, one at the back. Oh, wait. <laughs> Uh, hi there. Uh, my name's Leo. I uh, studied uh, economics for my undergraduate, and I'm now a teacher. Um, a lot of the statements about macro that you mentioned in the first part of your lecture are things that I've had friends come to me, uh, friends from university who didn't study economics, and I've heard a lot of those. I think they, they do ring true. Uh, what I found was that where they had gained those ideas about macro, it, it didn't come from reading macro papers or reading economists. It came via political debates. Uh, you mentioned uh, certain policies, deregulation, lowering taxation. And what would tend to happen was there'd be a debate about that. Someone would quote economics because it sort of seemed to support their beliefs, but they might misrepresent, they might be very selective about the way they presented models. And I think with deregulation, with lowering taxation, something you frequently see, there's a debate to do with distribution of wealth where certain economic theories seem to support uh, a more laissez-faire approach. Um, I think part of the reason that can happen is that when there's misrepresentation of, uh, of economic ideas in a political debate, Economists don't seem to be very good at protecting their ideas. So the question is, how might we better yeah. protect our... Yeah. I, I fully agree with you. It, I think it would be very tough to uh, keep it independent. I mean, there, there are a couple of policy institutions now that give prizes. Uh, and, I mean, I think they give prizes to... Um, I mean, smart and good people, but they usually give them because there's very smart academics, and very often this relationship, like they used to be, these you know, this smart guy's student, and um, I think that'd be very difficult. So I would, it'd be important that these policy institutions, right, really make clear for what kind of contribution is being given. 
in some sense, they should get rewarded for that because, I mean, like I said, that you know our profession is self-regulatory. Even in terms of you know getting grants, we you know we are uh, evaluated by ourselves. And these policy institutions that do give grants, what they do is that they send an email around to people like me, and they say, you know, can you name any you know an economist under 40 who's done really well in terms of policy? But I mean, so I, I shouldn't be the one to ask. And I mean, I. I agree with you. I think uh, it'd be tough to implement it. And in some sense, we, you know, we, have to, we would have to make better resources available to actually do this evaluation right. And um, because the way it happens now is, is that people quite quickly decide that they go for the safe choices. Um, and so, yeah, I fully uh, agree with that. Um, uh, about... I'm not quite sure I, I got your question right, but um, like, like I said, is that, so there are some people who are very good at sort of communicating, uh, but very often, even though these people may have had a very impressive academic past, is that they're not active academically anymore. And you can also sort of understand, because if, you know, if you're a great speaker, right, and you're very good at sort of you know, making arguments, or you're very good in debating, you can make lots of money. Right? So I mean, people like Willem Buiter or Krupman is that you know, in a couple speeches they make more than I do in a whole year. I mean, these fees are non-trivial. So if you're good in that, then that's what you're going to do. If you're not very good in that, and you're going to spend most of your time sitting behind your computer, and then only now and then when you build up the course, you're going to speak to you know, the general public. Um, so... Maybe they should train us better so, you know, to do the debating and to do the PR. And, um, because I think, I, I think it is true is that in the public domain, whether it's about you know, austerity or about the Eurozone, is, um, you get a, you know, a, a, only a couple selective voices. So part of what we're going to do with the Center for Macroeconomics is we're going to have a monthly survey where we're going to ask, you know, really lots of macroeconomists in the UK what they think about the issue. So then at least is that, you know, you, you get a comprehensive view. Uh, and not just, you know, a couple loud voices. Okay, any more for any more? No? Um, one last question. There, and then I think we'll be done. My name is Ross. Um, I was wondering how important you think it is to have a figure or a group of figures in the public domain um, to sort of voice economic uh, uh, policies or, or give opinions on policies to try to inform the public about um, what, it, what the implications are of implementing kind of certain policies, uh, whether that's an actual, that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, the person that sort of comes to mind immediately, I mean, historically speaking, is Milton Friedman in America in the in 1970s. I mean, he was insanely popular, uh, even in the mainstream, he was given a 10-part miniseries on PBS, I mean, he was, you know, really popular. But how, you know, in terms of his actual um, policy positions, I mean, is that, is that detrimental to the, to the whole um, discourse, to have a sort of a biased opinion, even though it might be um, benefiting the whole discussion on another level? So I think, I think the key question there is uh, an independent group of economists, say, 
writing in a newspaper doing a regular feature or something like that just saying this is our view as economists of what the key policy things are is that an answer I think that definitely would be a good idea I mean, you know, we're trying to do it with the center but you know, to answer your question I think having people like Milton Friedman and, and Krugman is bad because these guys clearly also have you know, political motivation uh, I mean, Krugman is incredibly smart. He says lots of good things, you know, which make you think. But, I mean, just like Friedman, is that these, the, the reason why they say some things which are just not true must be because they have a political message, too. And so I, I think, in, of course, is that you cannot say that's bad, these people should keep their mouth shut, right? The, the worst thing is really is that we don't respond, right, as a profession as a whole, and say, you know, Krugman says lots of things which are right, but lots of things which are wrong. And with Milton Friedman, it was the same thing. Uh, right? But if you want me to answer this evening uh, right, with a sharp answer, I would say it's definitely bad. Okay, I think we are going to have to close it down there. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming this evening. Uh, if it wasn't for you being here, the, word, the true word about the state of macroeconomics would not get out there. So... Please, please proselytize, or whatever the word is, I'm after. Okay, before, before we do leave, though, I should say, this was the third of four in a series of public lectures put on by the Center for Macroeconomics. The final one will be given by Kevin Sheedy, who will be talking about unconventional monetary policy and the financial crisis, that will be on the 30th of April. I'd like to close by personally thanking Walter for his talk tonight. I've certainly uh, learned a lot, I think, from this. Um, so thank you all again. Thanks, Walter, and uh, see you all next time.